This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. Click Donate at either DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue our podcast for those on the discerning journey. Thank you and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com presents Pathways to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima on Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathways to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. What's in Benedict can be found in East because Cassian brought it from Evagrius. I'm looking for a quote, and it's not from Benedict. It's from a, a contemporary Orthodox metropolitan named Herotheus. And he says, if the noetic faculty in the heart is operating, then we can come in contact with what he calls a second liturgy. Quote, something happens that seems strange to most people, but is natural for those who consciously practice hesychia. This is a silence, contemplative. Although they are present at the divine Eucharist and are aware through their senses and their reason of everything going on, those are the first two faculties that I identified. They are listening at the same time to the noetic faculty in the heart, where the Holy Spirit praises without ceasing. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. In other words, there are two liturgies. One is the external liturgy of the Divine Eucharist, where the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Spirit. The other is the inner liturgy, or Eucharist, where they experience uncreated worship and the spiritual priest of divine grace celebrates. There's no break between the two liturgies. Both are accomplished with full awareness. The Holy Spirit changes the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood, and the same Holy Spirit activates noetic prayer on the altar of the heart. Well, by talking about asceticism and mysticism, my purpose has been to try to make us think about that sounds like I just denied everything I've been saying. I'm trying to make us think about something, make us think about this liturgy going on. And I am trying to make us think about it. I'm writing books about Mrs. Murphy. I don't want her to read them, but I write about Mrs. Murphy for my colleagues so that my colleagues, I mean, I made a sweeping gesture to mean the academic world so that they don't look down their noses at Mrs. Murphy. Mm. My, uh, lesson from Aidan Kavanaugh and the uh, thesis in uh, Theologia Prima is that Mrs. Murphy is a true theologian and I'm making an apologetic for her. Well, on behalf of a Mrs. Murphy, I know, thank you, because she reminds me very much of my mother-in-law, Sally, who mm-hmm. for years lived, they had the home next door to the Our Lady of the Holy Rosary Cathedral in Duluth. She would create the great moments, those eight days, on the eighth day, where everybody, we just 
do it. Just do it, she would say to me. We'd go to go to mass, and then we'd all make the trek over to the house and then have the dinner together, where it continues. Mm-hmm. I mean, it proceeds into the next, the next moment, the next day. Everybody knows a Mrs. Murphy of that sort. Well, everybody of faith, because faith is contagious, and everybody would have had to come in contact with a flame that lit them. Could be your parents, could be a roommate at school, could be, could be. But Mrs. Murphy knows by doing. It's one thing to know about marriage by reading a book on the history of marriage. It's another thing to be married for 55 years. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Murphy is a 55-year practicing liturgist. You know the liturgy with a uh, spiritual faculty, even though you don't read the books about the uh, theology of symbol and uh, ritual studies, etc. For her, for the Mrs. Murphys and the Mr. Murphys out there, part of your definition that I think smacks so true, but yet they would, um, maybe because of their formation, it would seem like, ooh, such a foreign statement, is the ascent into deification. Yeah. It's one of those aha moments. I knew it, but I didn't know I knew it. Or for whatever reason, even the, the idea of ascending into deification it would be like, oh, not me. I'm not possibly yeah. me. I think that we uh, become modest. And maybe it's a sincere modesty. I also think sometimes it's a bit fake. But we dig our toe in the sand and we say, oh, no, not me. I'd never be a saint. I'm not struggling for deification. I'm just trying to keep six of the Ten Commandments so that I can get through the pearly gates before they slam shut on me like they did on Indiana Jones. Sorry, Jesus says, I won't rest until you're perfect, as my Father in Heaven is perfect. And this is something C.S. Lewis writes about. People think they like Lewis because he's a moralist, but actually they like him because he talks about transfiguration and deification. You must be perfect, and I will not let you let you rest. Whatever it costs you, this is from uh, Mere Christianity, or whatever it costs me in order to bring you home to the Father. Um, Columba Marmion is a terrific author on these matters, and he has uh, lines like this. um, Christianity is not a creed or an institution or a cultic activity or a doctrine, although, of course, it includes all of these. Christianity is Christ's life lived by us. What, in fact, is a Christian? All antiquity replies, another Christ. And what is the life the Christian lives? A list of observances? No way. Actually, he writes in no wise, but I think that's what must be the background to our street language. No way. It is the life of Christ within us, and all that Christ has appointed to maintain this life in us. It's the divine life overflowing from the bosom of the Father into Christ Jesus and through him into our soul. Well, apparently, uh, Marmion was in the back of my mind when I wrote about liturgical mysticism, the divine life perichoresis, canonically extended to overflow into our souls and invite us up. Christianos alter Christus, the Christian is another Christ. But 
we hesitate, we get too shy, we reduce Christianity to a moral code. No, not even that strong. We reduce it to the Boy Scout mottos. Christians should be thrifty, brave, and reverent, clean cut. No, we're inviting you to step up into the life of the Trinity, to have the Trinity dwell within your soul as a temple. This is what's at stake in uh, liturgy and deification. Mm. What has happened to our sense of definition or of words? It's, it's almost as though if they do matter. Words do matter. And yet we've surrendered the use of many words out of fear that, or something. I'm not sure what it is. And it's not just about deification. It's about, I don't know, there's so many, because we, we think people are too simple to grasp the depth of their meanings or that they, or we feel they've been co-opted by other spiritualities or whatever that might be. And so we, we can't use them anymore. But then yet we are losing the richness and depth of what has been passed on to us for literally millenniums. It's so. The um, words sometimes just get worn smooth, like the uh, waters of centuries have smoothed the stone in the river, and so the uh, word doesn't shock us anymore. And I think that's a task of the theologian, and maybe especially the historical theologian, to find these words on the lips of um, Augustine and have them startle us once more. And those are the best authors to read, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Not authors that are just uh, telling you what you already know, but, oh, I know this, but I've never known it before. Uh, Chesterton said that's the uh, role of an artist. I've seen that a thousand times, but I've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. And the way the artist does it is by putting a certain angle on it. The uh, concepts we hear, we should have heard them in childhood, and then you must grasp them better. When Lucy goes back to Narnia in, in the second book and sees Aslan again, she says, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you are older. Not because you are? No. But every year you grow older, you'll find me bigger. And I guess we don't find Jesus any bigger because we aren't growing older. I mean, chronologically, we are shuffling our way to the grave. But what Lewis means by growing older is something more profound. Paul Homer, that I, uh, whom I referenced, used to have the um, sentence, you cannot peddle truth or happiness. What a thought cost in the first instance, it will cost in the second. What it cost Augustine to think his thought about grace, it will cost me if I'm going to understand what Augustine thought. Well, the cost to me, I'm back to asceticism. I'm back to the formation of the subject. My subjectivity, this isn't subjective truth. There's one truth, but each subject has to grasp it. And there's a formation of the subject to grasp it. And it will cost something to grab it. So I could probably pick up the Bible and just read my way through Leviticus and uh, be bored. And I could probably just 
pick up any liturgy and sit through it, am I grasping it? What does it cost me to grasp it? This is a formation of the subject. And so it's a meeting of that, of those two eyes with this spiritual eye, this interior um, faculty. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment. Discerning Hearts provides content dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. To continue production of these podcasts, prayers, and more, go to discerninghearts.com and click the donate link found there or inside the free Discerning Hearts app to make your donation. Thanks and God bless. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Yeah, there are our sayings now that we hear, you know, go encounter Jesus, come encounter Jesus, go like we have to go find him. And yet I'm recalling the, the image of the ascent of Mount Carmel, the ascent that John of the Cross will express. And for us, we, we think we're climbing a mountain, but if you actually look at the drawings, John of the Cross's drawings of the image that he has in his heart that he's trying to express, the mountain, is, it seems as though it's turning in. It, it is going... It, Inside is bigger than his outside. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, he's trying yeah, in this it, picture, he's trying to turn it around so it ends up within. And it's that, that great mystery of through, with, and in him. We hear it so often in the scriptures. It's, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I... I'll remain in them and you remain in me, Father, that, that whole dance that happens in John 17. It's just, and yet we struggle with that identity of not only the Trinity, but that, that call, that ascent into deification. And so Ambrose says about his former catechumens, now neophytes coming dripping wet out of the baptismal font, how beautiful the church is in them. He flipped our grammar. It's not that I go into the church. Are you a member of a church? Where do you belong? The church comes into me. This is describing church. This is using the word church to describe this activity of God, which he's doing all over the place. There's the church of the righteous pagan, and there's the church of Israel, and now, uh, um, yes, and then now there's this uh, institutional sacramental church, and there's the uh, church victorious, and the church suffering, and the church militant. God's activity here as church. When you uh, said about going to find Christ to encounter him, um, I could tell someone where to encounter God. Really? Well, that would be something. Where, should, where could I encounter him? 11 o'clock on the corner of 5th and Main. He promises to be there. This is the trysting place. 
in uh, the Old Testament when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and God uh, descended and dwelled in the tabernacle, the uh, cloud of fire was there. And I picture that cloud of fire like God putting on the rear porch light to let us know he's home. Come on by. Oh, uh, I might as well mention the uh, tabernacle candle in church. That's the Old Testament cloud of flame saying, I'm here and available for you. But uh, this stuck then, uh, brought me back to a quote that it stuck in my mind a long time ago. These are the sorts of things that not Mrs. Murphy reads, but that might be stimulating to Mrs. Murphy. There's a, a book on uh, Syriac liturgical traditions, and there's a quotation from a dedication of a church written by a 5th century Syrian named Balai. And here's his uh, line. I'm just picking uh, three portions out of it. Think of this now as uh, what's being sung as a hymn for the consecration of a church building. That he may be accessible to earth dwellers, he has built himself a house among those with bodies. Well, that's lovely. Earth dwellers sounds like something Tolkien would write. But I'm one. I'm an earth dweller. I'm not an angel, a cherubim, a seraphim. I'm an earth dweller. He's built himself a house among those with bodies. We're uh, pretty fond of a habitat for humanity, but here we have a habitat for divinity. He has established altars like mangers where the church may feed on life. Remember that a manger was the trough cut in the side of the cave wall where they put food for the animals to eat. And when Mary didn't have a Fisher-Price bassinet handy, she put Jesus in the feed trough, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, put straw, and put him in the manger. The altar is a manger. The first one is in the house of bread, Bethlehem. The next ones are in houses of bread scattered all around. Make no mistake, I continue with the poem, the king is here. Let us enter the sanctuary and see him. Where are you, Lord? Behold, in heaven. And where shall we seek you? In the sanctuary. Heaven is too high for us. We cannot reach it. We see thee in thy church, where we have access. Well, you want to encounter Christ? You want to find the Holy Trinity? Meet me on the corner of 5th and Main, 11 o'clock. He's promised to be there. How about you? Are you going to be there? The trysting invitation is out. The letter is in the mail. What kind of response do we make? I'm not sure the corner where Dorothy Day followed those women walking to Mass, and she followed them and went in. She encountered something there that changed her life. This is a, uh, if we can mix East and West, uh, Catholic and Orthodox, this is a point that Schmemann makes. He says he never found liturgy to destroy or uh, replace life in the street. The sacred never replaced or destroyed the profane. It enlightened the profane. And this is what you've just said about Dorothy Day, who is 
so well known for her constant works of charity in the profane, secular, suffering world that she encountered something in the sacred space didn't kill, ruin, damage the uh, value of God's good creation. And then Schmemann concludes, everything I've tried to write about as liturgical theology is about this connection between the silent interior mass in that dark church and the bright lit street, which looks totally different to me when I come back out into it. And that's my imagery of going in and coming out. God coming down and raising us up. Our ascending into eighth day and then arriving in the street. When I was a kid, I had a, a dream once. We had a house with a uh, staircase that went from the living room up to the former attic, now where our, my bedroom was. And there was a door at the in the uh, living room to the staircase and then a door at the top when you went out. And I had a dream once in which I opened the door, I went up the staircase, and when I opened the top door, I came out into the living room again. It's like one of those uh, uh, drawings of the staircase that just goes around and around. Well, that seems to me like liturgy. You leave the world and you ascend up, 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 and you come out into the world. But you've changed. And now you're supposed to change the world. I'm reminded of that tornado we talked about in the previous conversation about how it finds its point all the way down into the one person, the one inner being, the core, the heart of a person, and then it just... There really are one-on-one encounters like that, mm -hmm. if one is open to it. But then it lifts you through all those different, just in the twirling and the constant conversion. Which uh, many people point out as uh, we shouldn't talk about a circle like we go back to starting point again. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about it rather as a screw, because you go around and around, you do Lent over and over again, but uh, uh, it's an ascending. And then one becomes conscious of time. I said there's repetition, and here comes Lent again, and we kind of ignore it, but when you reach a certain age, and I'm getting to it, you start looking ahead and counting down, not counting up. How many more Easter vigils will I celebrate? Taking an actuarial table and my current age, will it be 10 more? 15? I'll be lucky for 20 more. All right, 20 more Easters. What, what should I do with them? Take them nonchalantly? 20 times. There's something uh, that concentrates the mind about finitude. Yeah, there is something about that, even in the domestic liturgies, can we call them, I don't know, it, that we have, when I think of someone who is in hospice, and you know the time is coming short, and the moment they're laying in the bed, and the numbers of rosaries increases, the divine mercy chaplets increase, the um, remembrance of stories, and that all, that all increases, doesn't it? Something in uh, Gregory the Great, his uh, commentary on Job, gives me this impression. I don't think he said it, but, you know, you forget what authors have said. Then you come out and uh, have an impression. And the impression was that we see our lives 
like a two-dimensional creature crawling along a, a line on the page, like an ant walking along the dotted line on a tear here. But God sees the whole page, and he paints your life by filling in all the corners of that page. And in one part of your life, you're just struggling to keep up. Um, let's shift from death to uh, children and birth. I uh, have come to appreciate that what's so delightful about being a grandfather is that you have time to notice things that you didn't have time while you were a father. And I watch my kids with their kids and uh, we're playing, but we have to get them to eat their vegetables and uh, she's not drinking enough water and there's sleep time and are they out of diapers yet? And everything. that's life. That's what that corner of the page is for you at that moment. But years later, God will be painting with memory colors, another corner of the page. And I think some people think that they're not making any progress toward God because at the moment, that's not their, at the moment, it's not their task to be conscious of their coming closer to God. They still are as close, but at the moment, that's not their task. But at another point, it will be. Now, that same kind of contrast can be between uh, busy and having the leisure that comes with uh, older age, with experience. can also be a contrast between health and illness, to go back to your um, hospice person. There are things that you will not notice while you're healthy, things that you will, things that you'll notice when you're suffering illness. And God is using all of those brushes to, with which to paint your life. The, the real issue, the real question is not how it feels at the moment, but how the whole thing is going to be presented before God at the last, at the judgment, at the close. So the impression I had from Gregory the Great was that God is using your entire lifeline to make the offer to you. And you may have said yes at times you're not the least bit aware that you're saying yes, but it's uh, it's been said down deep in the heart in some manner. I'm talking about things I don't know anything about. This is spiritual science, and I'm just a liturgical student. But uh, a lot of the things that folks read uh, interest me in this way. Can I find a... Um, piece to quote myself to you. Sure. I, I want to get even my own words right. I write a uh, regular column for Gilbert magazine, and this was one from uh, a couple times ago. I uh, make observations about myself, and then I find something that uh, Chesterton has written, and that's the uh, point of these little homilies. And the thing that I observed was that I can't remember everything I've read. I'm sitting here looking around my office at the spines of books and I have an affection for each of them. And then I think, yeah, but what was in there? 
that uh, Bugakov copy, this um, Dionysius, this Ephraim, this Thomas, and what was in there? I not only can't remember the particular sentences, I knew that I loved that book, and I can't remember why I loved the book. And I remembered Augustine somewhere saying, uh, it's remarkable that we can remember we have forgotten something. I had to look that up because I'd forgotten just how it goes, but that's what the internet uh, gives you a little side treatment. That's an interesting comment. You go to the store and think, oh, I've forgotten something. Well, if you've forgotten it, you wouldn't even remember that you'd forgotten it to be bothered by it. Why is it that we can remember that we've forgotten something? At the close of this, the um, problem struck me this way. I begin to think that if I will not be able to remember the book I'm currently reading, what's the point of reading that book? If I'm not going to be able to recall in detail the material for a future published article, why am I struggling to put it into my memory? And this is a way of facing finitude. Then I had this thought one day. If a saint's good deeds do not go unnoticed by God, and a monk's prayers do not go unnoticed by God, maybe a theologian's thoughts do not go unnoticed by God. But the purpose of having the thought was to please God, not to put it into an article. And one day at Mass I was given an image of this. There was a cloud of incense left over near the ceiling. And I thought, a grain of incense, that would be the inspiration from God, was dropped on a coal. The coal is our mind. But it eventually burns out. It has released a cloud of smoke, and that's all that matters. The purpose of incense is to burn up. The incense flares out. The inspiration is forgotten. The coal gets cold. I'm talking about death. But the cloud of glory remains in praise of God. And that's what matters. So there's a, a liturgical mystic dealing with finitude. Mm. These things don't matter anymore because I'm going to retire and I'm not going to publish this anymore and it's going to sit in a shelf that nobody's going to read. I once actually found on the web a uh, listing for my first book on a website for 70 cents. I thought it was the website titled uh, Old Forgotten and Useless Books. That wasn't exactly the title, but that's uh, how I remember it. All of those things pass away, except the glory of God, except liturgy. So why are we doing any of these things? Why are we making our plans? Why do we build the sandcastle when we know that the next wave will wash it off, get rid of it? Uh, this is Gregory of Nyssa talking. What's the purpose of this influx of water when it doesn't raise the sea level? He stands at the shoreline and he sees a river flowing into the ocean, but the ocean doesn't get any fuller. That's the illustration that all these experiences flow into our lives. Does our soul get any bigger? Some kinds of experiences don't. Other kinds of experiences do. And the liturgical life would be living in the footsteps of those experiences which do increase the size of our soul. And that would involve charity and faith and hope. 
love doesn't divide, but it only multiplies. When we talk about our children, you have that first child, and how can I possibly love another child yeah. as, I'm, as I love this other one? But the, the amazement, the miracle of it all is you just do. Different, but yet the same. You may be thinking of the exultant in the Easter Vigil, a candle um, multiplied but not dimmed. Mm-hmm. When you take this one Easter candle and you light a hundred more candles, it doesn't divide or diminish the flame on the top of the Easter candle. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg.